Welcome back to History List and our series New Connections, Episode 3. This episode begins with that substance which so many men risk their lives for across the centuries. Spices. Spices were greedily desired in Europe. They were the savory, non-leafy parts of plants, seeds, nuts, barks, roots, and so forth. The leafy parts, incidentally, were distinguished as herbs. But Europe lacked many of the tastiest spices, which came from Asia, particularly India. It's a traditional Indian way of treating spices that gives us this episode's title, Tempering. The whole spices are heated in oil, or ghee, and as the temperature rises, the spices bring out their true flavors. The spice trade had been carried out throughout Indian Ocean and along the Silk Road for centuries. Ancient Europeans became dependent on these spices right through the Middle Ages, when, thanks to the newly empowered Ottoman Turks, the spice trade was cut off, and the European palaces found themselves without succor or savor. Enter two brothers, Martin Alonso and Vicente Yanez Pinzon. These two were reliable seamen, and so they were seen as securities on a voyage to accompany an untested sailor on his wild scheme to get access to these spices. Martin Pinzon captained the Pinta, Vicente Pinzon captained the Nina, and the Greenhorn, Christopher Columbus, captained the Santa Maria. Columbus's estimations of the globe's circumference were wildly inaccurate, and far too short. Most people knew the world was round, but far larger than Columbus thought. By the Pinzon brothers signing on, though, the idea, to get to Asia by sailing west, across the Atlantic, had enough backing to launch in 1492 Columbus's first four voyages. They did not reach Asia, but they did manage to find landfall in the Caribbean, where Spanish colonies were quickly set up. At first, the goal was gold, but the tropics provided a different source of wealth, sugar plantations. Sugar was nearly as valuable as the spices Europeans were risking their lives circumnavigating Africa for. Sugar was an old-world crop introduced by the Portuguese to Brazil in the 1500s, which began being grown in the Caribbean shortly thereafter. By the 1640s, the British, taking their share of Caribbean islands, set up their first sugar plantations in Barbados. Sugar could there be manufactured into all sorts of things, like molasses and rum, all done with the labor of black slaves. Initially, the native Caribbean populations had been enslaved, but they died by the millions due to lack of immunity against old-world diseases, such as smallpox. By the 1600s, African slaves were being imported to the Caribbean to work on the new plantations. One of the key islands for the British was Jamaica, which they'd seized by 1670. For the next century, the English colony of Jamaica was a land of plantations and African slaves. 
slave rebellions followed. One Scotsman, who was involved in Jamaica's plantation culture, and who had worked on the Jamaican slave ships, was John Paul. He began to develop a reputation when he successfully returned a ship to port after much of the crew had died from an outbreak of yellow fever. An incident in Tobago, however, led to his wanting to avoid the British Navy, and so John Paul headed up to Virginia, far away from the long arm of the British law, and it was now that he added an extra name to be safe, John Paul Jones. But Virginia, in the 1770s, was spoiling for a fight with the British law. When the American colonies declared independence, Jones was just the sort to help lead the new Continental Navy against the British, which is exactly what he did. Throughout the Revolutionary War, he harassed the British Navy and was honored as an important figure in the tide of the war. The British, of course, depicted him instead as a pirate. By the early 1800s, it was clear to the new United States that the Navy was going to be crucial to their survival, thanks to the example set by Jones. It was President John Adams who initially put the Navy to the test. In America's initial conflict, after the Revolution, the Barbary Wars. The Barbary Coast, modern-day Morocco to Tunisia, had a nasty habit of impressing sailors, that is, kidnapping random people and forcing them onto ships, at which point there's no point complaining because you're already at sea. American ships in particular were targeted, and American sailors. So the Barbary Wars began, two conflicts that took place between 1801 and 1815. Ever wonder why the U.S. Navy sings about fighting to the shores of Tripoli? It's due to these wars with the Barbary Coast, which the Americans handily won, their first military victory as an independent nation. With the Barbary threat neutralized by the Americans, that left North Africa ripe for the picking. By the 1830s, the French had moved into Algeria, where Tripoli was located, and began setting up their colonial holdings. It was in 1831 that they organized a cavalry troop in the region, the famed Chasseurs d'Afrique, the African Chasseurs, a light cavalry unit. And it was a French military colonel who got his wartime experience with the cavalry in Africa, who takes us to the next part of our story. Claude Etienne Mini, while riding around North Africa, came up with the idea of a new type of projectile the mini ball, developed around 1846 and 1847. It was different from older bullets in two important ways. First, instead of being round, it was what we now call bullet-shaped, with a tapered end. Second, it was hollow instead of solid, and that meant it did more damage when it punctured the victim's flesh. The new mini-ball was all the rage in the mid-19th century wars, from the American Civil War to the war in Crimea. The new type of bullet, however, demanded a new weapon to fire it, which is how come the Enfield rifle was designed. 
this new musket became the de facto rifle of the British Empire, which by the 1850s had spread across most of the planet. Their most important territory was India, and it was there that the Enfield rifle played an unusual role in a major conflict in 1857 with the Great Sepoy Rebellion. Sepoys were the crack native troops recruited by the British Empire in India. See, for the Enfield rifle to work, you had to insert a paper cartridge with a measured amount of gunpowder. But this required two things to work properly. You had to bite off the top of the cartridge to expose the powder inside, and the cartridge had to be greased to be able to slip into the rifle. This is how the problem began. The sepoys consisting of Indian Hindus and Muslims, began to wonder what type of grease was used on the cartridges they were biting. If it was pork fat, then it was haram for Muslims. But if it was beef tallow, that was sacrilegious for Hindus. Rumors spread, helping lead to discontent and thoughts of mutiny. Eventually, due to the Enfield rifle and many other causes, the sepoys did mutiny, and a wave of unrest spread across much of India. One of the regions that quelled the flames of revolt fastest, however, was the city of Etowah, thanks in large part to a man who loved birds. Etowah's British administrator, by the name of Alan Octavian Hume, was installed in 1849, and when the rebellion broke out, it left a strong impression on him of the need to account for the native Indians' rights. This wasn't new, however, as he was generally lauded for his handling of the district and his siding with the Indian populace. After the Sepoy uprising, however, it became clear to Hume that he needed to shift his focus away from India's fascinating bird species and to its politics. By 1885, he had helped to found a new political organization, the Indian National Congress, which he led for the first two years of its existence. As the 19th century closed and the 20th century began, the Indian National Congress emerged as a leading voice in Indian self-government and home rule. It was at this time that a powerful new statement of home rule emerged, Satyagraha, proposed in 1906 by Mohandas Gandhi. This advocated using nonviolence for achieving their aims at getting rid of the British. By the 1910s, Gandhi was implementing these principles back in India, having returned there from South Africa. And by 1920, Satyagraha became the official platform of the organization. Four years later, Gandhi was the Indian National Congress's president. Remember how we got here? Spices from India drove voyages from the Europeans around Africa, and in 1492, under the leadership of Columbus and the Pinzon brothers, across the Atlantic. Their discovery of the Caribbean for Europeans led to colonization and establishing sugar plantations, like the ones the British set up in Jamaica, which were worked by African slaves imported on ships like the ones crewed by American Revolutionary War hero, John Paul Jones, whose naval exploits convinced the new nation of the importance of the Navy, which won America's first war off the Barbary Coast, 
leaving the territory open for colonization by the French. During which, a French officer came up with a better bullet, which needed a new type of rifle. Which got the sepoys upset, since it required greased cartridges, leading to an uprising that made one local British administrator realize the need for more Indian political rights, thereby founding the Indian National Congress, which adopted nonviolent satyagraha for its home rule. But that's not quite the end of our story. There's one more twist. You see, not everyone was fond of the new policy of nonviolent resistance, and one member of the Indian National Congress in particular found it so offensive that he quit in protest in 1920. That man was Muhammad Ali Jinnah, and so he created his own new political ambitions, focusing on strictly Muslim rights. When, after World War II, home rule became the focus of Indian politics, the British began the process of decolonizing, leaving behind an independent India in 1947. Throughout the 1930s, Jinnah had supported Muslim nationalist movements, and now, with an independent India, he fought for a new Muslim nation, Pakistan. Gandhi and Nehru, India's first prime minister, tried to get Jinnah to call off his supporters, but he would not. And so, in 1947, the country split into India and Pakistan, which at the time also included Bangladesh. The split was a humanitarian disaster. Tens of millions of people became refugees. Religiously motivated violence broke out, killing millions more. The partition of India was an incredible challenge and tragedy for the newly independent nation, and one of the largest crises of the 20th century. A national attempt at tempering that did anything but moderate the passions of the people involved. Today, as Pakistan and India both point nuclear weapons at each other and continue to stoke hatred for one another, we can use the example of the partition as a cautionary tale of the price for inflaming these sorts of divisive nationalist, ethnic, and religious passions. For India, it meant the deaths and displacement of tens of millions. What might inflaming those passions bring out elsewhere? <laughs>